truth, perspective, and growth. This is the Michael Carroll Discipleship Podcast. It's digressed humans. Jesus was the true human. Jesus came as a model of what humanity was supposed to be, what we're supposed to look like. So if you take that concept and apply it to this planet, well, if Jesus blows our mind, what's the new earth going to look like? Hey guys, it's Michael, and today's episode is a little bit different, but I wanted to just bring you in on a class that we had at uh, School of Leadership, and we were talking about the covenant king in the Old Testament, and it applies so much to the birth of Jesus, the return of the king to Israel, and how that applies to the redemption of the world. So I felt like it would have been a great thing for you to be in that class. So I recorded it and I'm going to bring you into it. So it's a little bit longer than usual, but I want to encourage you to take some notes and and just dive into a little bit more of the theology of the Old Testament as we talk about the return of a king. So let's go ahead and start. I'm excited about tonight and we'll just get going. Father, I thank you, Lord, that we have the gathering. God, I thank you that we have this opportunity to hear about you. Uh, this amazing covenant that we were in, God, this amazing family that you've built, Lord. Uh, God, I just thank you that we're a part of it. God, we're grateful. And I thank you that we get to be with you. Your presence is with us, Lord. Father, I pray your spirit leads us, God. Let your spirit open our eyes and our ears, God, to hear your voice, to hear your word, your truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we ended uh, talking about the, the Davidic dynasty the dynasty through King David. We talked about the idea of a king in the kingdom of God. Why is there a king? Uh, we talked about why was David a good king? Uh, we talked about David's devotion, God's word, devotion to, to leading the people into submission. To talked about how God, um, David recognized that Yahweh was the true king which marked him in the Old Testament as a good king, a king that recognized that Yahweh was the true king, and David recognized that his position was a servant to the true king. And so this whole concept of David being a good king gives us a model of what a good king looks like and what the coming king is going to look like. And so we we, we tracked a little bit, real briefly, through the, the history of the kings of Israel. Uh, we talked a little bit about the split of um, Israel, how the northern kingdom split after Solomon's death, and the southern kingdom, Judah and Levi, became Judah, and the northern kingdom uh, became apostate. And so, all throughout the history of the kings of Israel, there was like we saw in of rebellion and sin and judgment. And these prophets that we read about in the Bible were messengers that God raised up during these times to give warning and, and instruction to the king and to the, and to the people of God that if you don't turn back to God and turn hearts away from the nations and the, the gods of these nations, that you're going to lose your land. You're going to lose this, this blessing that God has given you. And ultimately, we know uh, the story, right? We, we know that Israel uh, failed 
We know that in the seventh century, the northern kingdom uh, was scattered. They went into their own form of exile when the Syrians conquered them. And then in the fifth century, sixth century BC, around 579, 578, Judah went into exile. And they went to, into, they were forced into slave camp and they were forced into living in Babylon as Babylonian slaves. The Babylonian Empire came in, destroyed this, the whole uh, marking point of the identity of God's people. In, a, in, a, in many ways, we can see this as um, genocide. We saw this in World War II, you know, where millions and millions of Jews were murdered ruthlessly. And it was tragic. And their whole identity as a people was, was uh, tr- they attempted to stamp, the, stamp this out, right? And so we see that happening to God's people in the exile, right? The temple's gone. The temple was everything to them. The temple was not just the place where God dwelled, but the, it was also their, their national identity. It was, the, it was the marking point of why they were even uh, a called people. It was, the temple was a place where God dwelled with them. It marked God's plan of being with humanity once again. So now that the temple is gone and they're out of the land, well, there's nothing more left of this covenant agreement for them to enjoy, for them to cherish. They, they've been stripped of this agreement that they have been in. And so they were left wondering, is this covenant even still a thing, right? Is this, is this promise still alive? Is there still, uh, is there still substance to this hope that we have? Is there still meaning to this thing, right? And so uh, God would raise up uh, prophets like Ezekiel, who was a prophet who was in exile. And he would reminds them, and this is why when you read Ezekiel, it's so intense. It's very intense. Ezekiel was an intense prophet. He would do some crazy things, some things I wouldn't recommend you to do if you read through it. Okay. Not everything you read in the Bible is something you should apply to your life. Amen. <laughs> right. So Ezekiel is this intense prophet who reminds Judah, reminds the Jewish people, Israel, they weren't Jewish at the time. They became Jewish people when they came out of exile, and we'll go over that. Um, then that you're here because of your rebellion. You're here because of your sin. But then the second half, Ezekiel reminds them also, but remember that you were never God's people because you were good anyways, right? That you were never covenant people because of your faithfulness anyways. It's always been because of the faithfulness of God. So count your blessings. God is faithful. And because he is faithful, he will redeem you. And that's where we see scriptures like in Ezekiel 37, where he says, God will put his spirit. He will create a new covenant. There will be a covenant, a new people, and God will put his spirit in their hearts and cause them to walk in his ways and follow his law. And he would give glimpses of hope in the exile that it looks like there's no hope. Looks like there's nothing, nothing good going on, but there is a coming time when God is going to redeem Israel. Isaiah would give uh, prophets. All the prophets would not only declare judgment, but they would also point them to the future of, and remind them that God is going to, God is going to hear the cries of His people, and He's going to respond. And so that's how 
uh, we ended really kind of last class. And we pick back up of Israel returning from the exile, returning from Babylon. And on October 30th, 539 BC, Cyrus, Cyrus the Great of Persia, I'm sorry, enters the city of Babylon and conquers it. And this is good news for the Jewish people. The Persian Empire conquered lands a little bit differently than Babylon did. Babylon would come in, take the people, and take them back to their own land. Well, Persia did it a little bit better, a little bit smarter. They did a little bit more like Rome kind of did it, is they conquered the lands, but they let you stay in the land. You just became their people, right? And so they put in their leaders to rule you. You can keep your religion. That's fine, you know. Because they recognize that if you, if you let people keep their religion, they're more willing to listen and obey. And that's exactly what they did. They allowed them to keep their religion. Matter of fact, they even gave money to rebuild the temple. But they were still under domination from the Persian Empire. And this is an important thing to understand. Because sometimes I think we think uh, just because uh, Israel came back from the exile that they were free people. They did not come back free. They did not come back in their own way. They were citizens of Persia. They were under the rule and reign of Cyrus the Great. They were under the rule and reign of the dominion of the Persian Empire. So this is still not a true return from exile. And I think that's the point I'm wanting you to understand. That although Israel did indeed physically come back to the space of Jerusalem, they came they came back to the space where the old temple was. They did not come back into their genuine, true, suzerain, vassal agreement. Why? Because Yahweh is the true king in this agreement that they have. Yahweh is the true king of the covenant. As citizens of Yahweh's kingdom to the fullest extent, because they had a different king, the king of Persia. So, in the sense of what the covenant looked like, this wasn't a true return from exile. They were just relocated back into the space. That's an important thing for you to understand because that's going to really help you understand Jesus a lot more fully. So one thing you need to understand is they went back to the land as Persian citizens. Persian citizens. This also sparked the cycle of being under, under the dominion of other nations. Not just Persia, but Greece and then eventually Rome. Now, the destroyed temple was rebuilt. That was a bright moment in their, in their history. And under the reforms of Ezra, and the temple was rebuilt. However, it wasn't as glorious as it was under Solomon. And we read that in Ezra chapter 3, verse 10. I'll read that for you real quick. Um, During the rebuilding of the temple, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord... The priests in their vestments and with trumpets, the Levites with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord. He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. So then they're getting it in. They're thankful. They're, they're back. They're building the temple again. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud 
when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. And what we see here is a generation that remembers the glorious day where the temple was beautiful and big and God's presence had not departed yet from the temple. And they're looking at this reformation that's being funded by the Persian Empire. It's being funded by a, a, a king other than Yahweh. And some of them are happy. They're like, man, look at, look at the good stuff that's going on. And then the ones who remembered the days of the original temple were weeping. And it's understand that this isn't what it's supposed to be like. This isn't what the prophets declared, right? This isn't what we're really looking for. So there's a mixed opinion about the rebuilding the temple. But the one thing I want to point out is the glory of the temple, God's manifest presence never returned the way it did originally in Solomon's temple or the tabernacle at Sinai. We don't read about any of that with the new temple, the second temple. There's no glorious, you know, when uh, Solomon uh, dedicated the temple and clouds were shaking and, and uh, there's fire going and, and, and God's uh, glory is on display and, and, and you see the people reverently fall like, oh, oh my gosh, the way is here, right? We don't see that with the second temple. That's another important thing to take note of mentally. So in spite of the significant changes in the lives of the Jewish people, they're still looking forward to the return of a king of the Davidic dynasty. Isaiah looked to the future where one day a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, Jesse being David's father. From his a branch will bear fruit. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people. And his resting place will be glorious. The same prophet Isaiah declared that a child would be given to this nation. Isaiah 9 uh, verse 6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of this government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. And from that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So the reality of a coming king and the reality that they're experiencing under the Persian Empire is completely different. It's going to be the same with the Greeks. With the Greeks, it's going to be the same with the Romans, right? They they may be in their physical space, but the return Messiah, the the the, the one from the line of David, because he comes uh, with a whole new reality that the people of God will be experiencing: freedom from the enemies, right? Everlasting peace, okay? Um, freedom from the oppression that they have been experiencing under all of these different empires. So they're looking for a return of a king. 
And this king had certain credentials, okay? It wasn't just any old person because Israel had tons of people who popped up in history and said, I'm the Messiah, right? I'm the one the Lord sent. And they would have their little bit of people and they would follow them and they would end up just kind of fading away or, or, or getting in trouble or whatever. So there was all sorts of fake messiahs that we read about in the history of Israel. But there were certain credentials that... Uh, throughout the history of the kings that were necessary for this to be a God-ordained king. There were credentials. So how would this chosen king be identified? Because like I said, anybody could just say, well, hey, here I am, son of David. The Lord sent me. You know, how do we know? How do we know that this person is? You know, many people said, Jesus is crazy. Do you hear these things he's saying, right? Uh, he's saying he's the Messiah. He's saying he is I am. He's saying the statements that the religious leaders were, were going crazy over. How do we know that this is the, the genuine chosen king that God has promised to send? Well, the same way kings were always identified in Israel was through the genealogy and through the confirmation from a prophet. That's how, that's how kings were confirmed. That's how, it was, uh, that's how it was, you were able to look at a king and confirm that they were chosen by God, the true king. So let's look at that. We'll look at the genealogy. How did Jesus match that? Matthew 1.1 says this. For those of you who open up your New Testament and you're like, I'm just going to go ahead and go to Matthew 2 because Matthew 1 is just a little, all these names and, you know, trying to get to the good stuff, right? What I want you to understand that when you open up Luke and you open up Matthew and you open up and see these genealogies, what you're seeing is credentials. What you're seeing is proof that Jewish people would want to see and what they would be looking for as they're trying to see, is Jesus really the Messiah? Is he really the chosen one? So they're laying out right from the beginning the credentials that Jesus had before they even get into his ministry. They're going to talk about this is why he's legit, okay? So the genealogy is very important for you to understand, read through the names, grasp it, crack back the names, because it's going to help you to see the legitimacy of, of Jesus being the chosen king. So Matthew 1.1 says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right here from the very beginning, Matthew was, uh, links Jesus directly to the line of David and the family of him. And this link spoke power to the chosen king. The second aspect that uh, confirmed Jesus as the chosen king, as the Messiah, was he was confirmed by a prophet. Just like every king from the past history of Israel, the final word over a king of Israel was from a prophet. The last prophet of the Mosaic tradition was John the Baptist. He was the last prophet. And John appears in all four gospel accounts as the prophet who declares Jesus to be the genuine chosen Davidic king. We read that in Matthew 3, verse 1 through 3. The Bible says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. 
This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now, as I said, many people prior to Jesus and even after Jesus rose up to claim that they were the coming Messiah. So in the Old Testament, there was actually a method to, uh, to reveal any controversy. And in the Old Testament, if there was some doubt or controversy over who should be king, the chosen one was identified by public anointing. We see that with David. When, when David, uh, when Saul had rejected himself as king and Samuel went to go find the new king, and uh, Samuel went through the line of Jesse's sons. And, he, and Jesse, uh, David's father, pointed him to his tall, good-looking, handsome, broad-shouldered oldest son. Well, look at him. And, and Samuel's like, nope, not him. And he goes through the line. And then he gets to David. And he anoints David. And that anointing is confirmation. It's the confirmation as to if there's any doubt over who the king is, this public anointing is the confirmation of something. In this ritual, the oil of the anointing was a symbol that the Holy Spirit had come upon the one chosen in order to empower him to serve as God's steward over the kingdom. Again, this, this oil, Superman, it was the representation of the Spirit of God covering over that king, empowering them with a power beyond their own ability because they're now a steward of Yahweh, the ultimate power. So they need power. If you're going to steward Yahweh's leadership, you need a little bit of extra power. How do you know that, right? Because Yahweh's the ultimate authority. He's the ultimate power. So if he's king, he needs to give his power, his spirit to his stewards who will be the stewardship of his kingdom. So that's what the anointing uh, represented. It represented the Holy Spirit coming upon that man, upon that king to empower them to be the steward of Yahweh's kingdom. So... In Matthew 3, we'll continue, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John John consented. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now, three things happen here that confirm the beginning of new covenant and confirm that Jesus is indeed the chosen king to enact this new covenant and lead God's people into a new age. Three things. One, the last prophet of the Mosaic order baptizes the newly identified king. Okay, so this is confirmation from a prophet that he's the king. Second, the heavens open. What the oil of the old covenant symbolized, the Holy Spirit, 
visibly descends upon the chosen one. This is the public anointing of Jesus. This is the public anointing of, of him being confirmed to actually be the one who's being empowered to be the king of Israel. And third, the voice of God himself. As opposed to merely being the voice of the prophet, God himself announces that Jesus is indeed the chosen king. So much more beyond Jesus just saying, oh, I think I should get baptized today. Or Jesus saying, I'm just going to go ahead and, you know, start my ministry today. When John says, I can't do this, Jesus said, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this, to fulfill. And that word righteousness, in a sense, could also mean covenant faithfulness. And in a, this needs to happen in order for everyone to see what's about to happen and understand that this is from God and understand that my kingdom that I'm starting right now is indeed the one that's been long expected, is indeed one that God has been preparing Israel for, and ultimately it's the one, it's the kingdom that God has been preparing and planning from the beginning of the ages. So a lot's going on right now in Jesus' baptism. But the thing that I want you to grasp on that is that it's his confirmation that he's the chosen king. It's the confirmation that he is the one through the line of David who will come and be the steward of God's kingdom. You can also add how John the Baptist declared, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you'll see that there's no doubt that Jesus is the long-awaited child of David. Now, there's an incredible feature now that's added to this redemption plan that was not expected, but it actually perfectly unites and explains this redemption. So this is what Israel was not expecting, and this is what God multiplies into the plan. The fully human last Adam, Jesus, was fully human, and he was also the last Adam who is the offspring of Abraham and the legitimate heir of David, is also the fully divine son of God. Therefore, in the flesh of Jesus, Adam will pay the penalty for his crime. The power of sin will be exalted in his flesh. But rather than being consumed by the great enemy of death, this last Adam, being fully God, will rise from the grave and give birth to a new lineage, a new people of God, and fulfill the impossible rescue plan that was hinted at in Genesis 3.15. So it was Jesus' full humanity that was able to draw sin upon himself. It was Jesus's human flesh that was able to draw the full power of death, the full power of sin on his flesh. Because remember, God himself does not dwell with sin, okay? The darkness is expelled by the light. So it's not like God can be like, I just don't want to get dirty. It's impossible, okay? It's not gonna happen. So fully human Jesus absorbs the sin onto his flesh at the cross. And it's in his flesh at the cross that the power of sin is destroyed, is condemned, it's exhausted. And Jesus steps in as the last Adam 
to pay the penalty of sin in a human body. But he was also fully God. And being fully God, he was able to swallow up death. He was able to rise from the grave, being fully God. And it's in this resurrection, it's in Jesus coming up from the grave that a new creation was birthed. And now a new covenant, a new lineage, a new family was started with Jesus being the firstborn son. And who's the inheritance in the family? The firstborn son, right? That's the one who gets the inheritance. That's the one who steps in. Do we understand how Jesus is the one who comes in and starts a new family through his lineage? He's also the one with all the responsibilities. He's God's firstborn son, the one who inherits the family, right? God's firstborn son. Jesus starts a new direction. It's a miracle, Nobody was expecting it, okay? Nobody in Israel was like, man, you know, I bet you, I bet you this is what's going to happen. I bet you God's going to come fully man and fully human, and he's going to let the Romans kill him, and he's going to die, and then he's going to resurrect, and he's going to defeat death. I bet you anything. If you said that, man, people will probably chase you out of the temple ground. Like, man, get this. He found something. He's been smoking something. Man, get this man out of here, right? <laughs> He's talking crazy. You can't think this stuff up. You can't make this stuff up. But when you think about the logic behind it, looking back to the cross, only fully God and fully man, Jesus, would be able to do what he did. Only a person who is fully human but also fully divine would be able to absorb death and win and rise from the grave. And so here... God accomplishes this impossible task of defeating the power of sin that we unleashed in this world to redeem his human family. We read about that in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. The son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, for in him uh, are visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. And for him, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now listen, I'm going to just take a second to give a praise break, because if you've got a problem going on right now, you need to stop and chill. Because God, Jesus, has all things held together in your life, meaning a miracle isn't a magic trick. A, mi- a miracle is Jesus just adjusting his grip a little bit on your life and saying, oh yeah, that thing over here that you thought was really impossible, let me go ahead and shift that real quick. And and this reality happens and this reality happens in our lives that seem so impossible at times. Our lives that seem so out of our own control at times are in the full grip of the master, of Jesus, 
In him, all things hold together, meaning there's nothing that can't be accomplished by Jesus. There's nothing that can't be shifted by Jesus. Our lives are in his hands. And we're thankful because he's in the holy of holies right now. He is in the presence of God standing there on our behalf saying, call upon my name and you could be right here with me. Call upon my presence of God. Call upon the, on the name and my father will call you son. My father will call you daughter. My father will invite you into the family, not because of what you did good, not because you got your life together, not because you got all of the checklists made, but because of what happened at the cross. You can call upon my name and stand in the presence of God and have your life redeemed. That's a miracle. And I pray we never lose sight of how amazing that is. That's you. And I don't know what your life looks like in this moment. I don't know what your life looks like the past 10 years, even maybe the last hour. I don't know. But what I want to encourage you to do is to take the focus of your control and the focus off your relationship with God and put it on Jesus. Build your life around Jesus and your life will be transformed. Build your life around Jesus and that addiction that you've been dealing with will snap off you. Build your life around the Son of God. Build your life upon not religion, not the 10 steps to be free, not the, not the read this book and your life will be better. The Son of God, the firstborn of all creation, the image of the invisible God, the one who came to show us what God really looks like, the one who came to show us who the Father really is because before him we didn't know. Before him there was no knowledge of God, not true knowledge. There was a a revelation, but there was all sorts of restrictions. There was all sorts of boundaries placed because the reality of evil and sin still separated us. But Jesus, the image of the invisible God, came in human flesh, walked amongst us to show us the Father, to show us what God really looked like, what he really thinks about us, what his plans really mean. And he short-circuited all the misinterpretations of the law, all the misinterpretations of Scripture, all the misinterpretations and the dysfunction and corruption of the religious leaders at that time and gave you the 100% unfiltered Yahweh. This is God. And there's no, we don't need to break down and exegete Jesus' words That is the revelation of God. That is what God said. I only say what the Father says. I only do what the Father tells me to do. What is he saying right there? He's saying that this is not a filter. This is not a a God to a prophet, a prophet to a man. This is God's word straight to you. I'm only doing what the Father says. And I hope and pray we don't, we don't miss, we don't read a verse and just move on to the next one and forget the depth with the idea that he's the image of the invisible God. Verse 19. 
oh, 17. He's before all things. In him, all things hold together. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So much happened at the cross, and we're going to talk about that. So, where is this kingdom of God now, right? Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven is upon you. The kingdom of God has come upon you. Where is this kingdom of God? We read about, and we talked about this in the Old Testament, the story of the Bible covers uh, a story about the people of God living in the place of God with the presence of God dwelling amongst them, right? Remember, we talked, the book talked about that a lot, about the people of God, the place of God, and the presence of God. These are three main themes in the story of redemption. Jesus, the king, redefines all of these aspects in the new covenant. We're going to break them down real quick. So we'll start with the people of God. The people of God, after Jesus, are no longer defined as the biological offspring of Abraham, but by anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord and endures to the end. It's a new definition. Now it's an internal choosing of God, okay, that marks you and identifies you. It's you from here, the core of your being, choosing Yahweh, choosing. That's what now incorporates you into being the people of God. In other words, the embrace of redemption has been expanded to include all humanity as it once did in Eden. Again, in Eden, there was no Israel because Israel is a new humanity after Eden of God working through Israel to bring his presence back to the nations of the world. So it was never about God choosing a special people and only being with them. It was about God choosing a people to be his servant so that he could bless the world. And ultimately his goal is for everybody to be his people. Therefore, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The second thing that Jesus redefines is the place of God. The place of God is redefined from being the land of national Israel, as in the days of David, to the promised place known as the New Jerusalem, which is the restored and recreated earth. So we go from the boundaries of of Israel in the ancient Near East and Palestine to a reborn, born again, recreated earth is the new place of God. We read about that in Revelation 21 called the New Jerusalem. So when we think of the new Jerusalem, we're not just thinking of a new little city on earth. It's the earth. And the new Jerusalem that comes out, comes out like the Holy of Holies. It's just a square, it's a, it's a square cube of, of manifest, unfiltered presence of God just coming down to the earth. And it's just, boom, the whole, whole earth is born again. That's the image of Revelation that we see in Revelation 21 to 22. That's the new place of God. But in this era, we're like, okay, well, we know that happened yet. Why? Because this world's crazy, right? We don't live in the New Jerusalem right now, okay? So we're in the not yet era. And that's what biblical theologians talk of already 
but not yet. Meaning the already part, the kingdom of God has been launched, but it has not yet fully been realized, right? This earth has not been born again. That's why Paul said in Romans 8 that creation is groaning and yearning and waiting for the children of God to be revealed. Meaning that just like you are groaning and waiting for my knee don't work like it used to, right? God, when are you going to give me my body, right? That same groaning, right? That same yearning, that same desire for redemption, this plan it's going through the same groaning. It's the same yearning. It's awaiting the new Jerusalem, right? So the place that uh, we will be with God has not fully been realized yet, although it will be here. So it's already been launched, the kingdom of God. You're already being prepared. That's what your discipleship is. You're being conformed to the image of Jesus, being prepared to live in the new Jerusalem in a restored earth where there will be no more pain, sorrow, death, by God's teaching you not to be mean, right? How to live well amongst people while you're being prepared for the new place of God. So we, the redeemed of the new covenant, dwell on this present planet just like Abraham lived in Canaan. And this is what we learn from the Old Testament on the, with, when we track Abraham through his story. Abraham was taken to the land of Canaan. He said, look around. This is going to be it. God's like, this is it. Abraham's like, okay, but all right, God, I don't have a son yet. And there's a lot of people that live here. And it's just me. And God's like, look around. This is going to be it. Okay. And Abram wandered around the promised land that would one day be his family's land. So we too look around this world and we see the beautiful sunset. We're like, man, look how good God is, right? Look how beautiful creation is. Look how amazing. And then someone gets behind us and starts honking. And we're like, oh man, I forgot we ain't there yet. <laughs> right? It's the being here but it's not fully realized yet. We too are wanderers on this earth. However, this earth will one day be our possession. We too live in the very place that we will inherit, the very place that will be our place, the presence of God. And like Hebrews 11 says, by faith, When Abraham was called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, he obeyed and he went. Even though he did not know where he was going. Some of you may not know where you're going right now, right? Some of you just may not understand. And you're looking around maybe like Abraham did once in a while. Like, okay, Lord. But what about this, right? But by faith... He made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who heirs with him of the same promise. And he was able to do this because he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And that's a critique on the modern church. Who thinks that 
our methods and our programs and our solutions are the true answer. And somehow we can bring excellence to the table and production to the table and make the world a better place. And Abraham understood that his foundation, his future, was dependent solely upon God building it. And I would ask you for your own personal life. Ask yourself a a real question. How much of your future depends upon God building it? And how much of it depends upon your ability to control? Your ability to make things happen. We learn how to make things happen. Some of y'all are good at it. I can make a couple phone calls, right? I could do a couple things and make something happen if I need it to happen. God, you're going to be with me while I do all of this stuff. Faith is taking the pieces that you have and trusting God's going to use them. And you do the work that God's called you to do. You're faithful to what God has put before you, whether it's your marriage or your ministry or your family, your education, whatever it is. You walk that part out to your best ability and you trust that God is gonna build something with it. It's not, okay, I'm just gonna trust that whatever I'm about to do, God is gonna be with that. That's not faith. And this is the part that I, I can't remember if this was your class or another class. Maybe it was. But this is the part when I was talking about discipleship, when you have to get to the point where you realize that your reality is your reality. And Israel brought their reality to God in prayer. Just like you too have to live your reality. The life you have, I'm sorry, don't be mad at me, is the life for all the good and bad and ugliness in it. That's the life you've been given. Now, In that, there's all sorts of stuff that can go wrong that is not necessarily God making it go wrong. It's not necessarily him doing all of these things. But the context of your life is where God placed you. And you have to accept that as reality. But the beautiful thing about faith, the beautiful thing that Abraham understood is that the context he had was enough for God. And the context you too have is enough for God. And faith doesn't keep you from the journey of suffering and it doesn't keep you from the journey of pain and it doesn't keep you from the journey of the weight. And sometimes some of you know what the weight looks like. It's hard. It's dry. It's not fun. And faith doesn't keep you from that. It keeps you in it. Keeps you going, keeps you walking. It lets you finish the journey because where God is taking you ultimately, where we are all going, is the same place. And ultimately, it's worth it because we will all, on the journey, will experience a fullness of life that none of us have yet to experience. 
a fullness of the presence of God that none of us have yet to walk in. It's where we're all going. And if you can keep your eye on the prize like Abraham, you can walk as a wanderer in a broken world. You can walk as a wanderer in a place that is far from God and be able to say, but my God is with me. But my God is faithful. And all of a sudden, the faithfulness of God is, is, is a lot more important than you realized. And it's a lot more meaningful that I can lay my head down at the end of the night and say, God is faithful. Because if he wasn't faithful, my future would not be secure. If he wasn't faithful, the foundation of my life would be wobbly. I'm one bad, I'm one bad day away from making a bad decision. I'm one bad emotion away from going way off track. And humans, we're up and down all around. You may be good, hallelujah, and then, you know, you, you're honking the horn. <laughs> all over the place. But through it all, like Abraham, we can say God is faithful. And because he's faithful, I know my future is secure. My destiny is secure. Where I'm walking is secure, and I don't have to understand the journey, and I don't have the answers, and I don't have to look all cleaned up and polished, and I, I, I may be a mess right now, but my future is secure. So I wake up every morning, and I say, God, you are faithful, and I'm going to live my life faithful to you, faithful to the journey. And Lord, I messed up yesterday, but God, because of Jesus, I'm able to come back into your presence and say, Lord, help me to build my life around following you, on you leading my journey. So we too, in this place of God, this will be our place, but this is not our place of rest yet. This is our place of wandering. This is our place of being pilgrims. This is our place of being light in the darkness. Priests of a broken world. This is our call as Another thing that Jesus redefines is the presence of God. Now, stay with me, because this is where it all comes together. And I, I want you to, don't want you to miss it. So actually what I'm going to do is I'm going to pause real quick, and I'm going to give space for any questions about the, the, the people of God, place of God, or anything that we covered prior to that. There's no bad questions. I give you gold stickers mentally when you, when you ask them. Okay, everybody's good? Okay. So another thing that Jesus redefines is the presence of God. In the new covenant, the presence is finally set free from its temple restraints. This is so beautiful. The restraints on God's presence in the temple was the result of sin polluting the space of the temple, making it dangerous for humans to approach. Once sin has been dealt with, there is no more pollution or need to restrain. Remember, in the garden, there are no restrictions on God's presence. In the garden, there was no priest, the priest. There was no need for any offering of sacrifices. There was no need to purify the space of the temple. It was already pure. There was no restrictions on God's presence. 
the restrictions on the temple that we see in the tabernacle and in Solomon's temple was because of the pollution of sin that would pollute the space of the temple. And to maintain sacred space in the temple, God had restrictions set in place to keep death away from that space. And so once sin and death has been dealt with, there's no more restrictions on God's, on the temple. That's one thing. In John 1.14, the presence has come to tabernacle among us in Jesus. The word dwell among us is the same word that is used for the tabernacle in the Septuagint, meaning Jesus came as a walking temple. Jesus came as the presence of God walking on earth. In John 2.21, Jesus refers to his as the new temple. Amazingly, and this is the thing I really want to hit home with, in Acts 2, Jesus entrusts the task of housing the presence of God to his church. Acts 2, verse 2. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. Okay, context real quick. I'm sorry. The disciples are waiting for Jesus, okay? Jesus reappeared to his disciples and said, wait for me. Don't go out, preach the gospel and all that other stuff that I know you want to do right now. And you saw me, I'm resurrected. That's great. Y'all chill. Wait for me, okay? And so the disciples were what? They were praying and waiting. They're like, okay, we know the Lord's going to come. He's going to come. He's going to come. He's going to come. And Jesus reappears. But he didn't reappear the way they thought he was going to reappear. And this is them waiting for God, okay? There's the context. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Notice the imagery that matches Exodus 40 and 1 Kings 8. This imagery that we see here in Acts were the hallmark of Yahweh dwelling the space of the temple, the space of the tabernacle. It, it represented his acceptance and approval of the habitation that was fashioned for him by his people. In other, in other sense, God, the people of God would form the tabernacle. They would build the temple. They would form this space for Yahweh to dwell. And Yahweh, in showing of his approval of this space, in this display of power and his glory would come and fill the Plymouth's temple where everybody had to fall back and they couldn't even stand in the presence of God. It happened in the tabernacle where everybody had to run out while the presence of God dwelled and they couldn't even enter into the space because it was so glorious. It was Yahweh showing his approval and it was demonstrating his power as he fills the space of the temple. So here we are in the upper room. We have a bunch of disciples and apostles who saw the resurrected Jesus, who were told to wait and pray and, and power is gonna come from above and all of a sudden, God's power and display enters into their body. And they become the new temple. And their physical bodies become the space that house God's presence. Just as the temple was set, sanctified. Remember those restrictions and, and stuff to keep sacred space? The structures have been set apart, sanctified to house the presence of God. 
So now the church, by the blood of Jesus, has been sanctified and set apart for the same purpose. This idea has been further developed in 1 Corinthians 3.16. Paul wrote, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Do you know what he's saying right there? That you carry the presence of God? That you are the space on earth that intersects with heaven? That you are the space on earth that the presence of God dwells in? That's another thing I hope we don't ever take for granted. The individual believer has become the temple. 2 Corinthians 6.16 takes it a step further. For we, collectively, we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them, plural, and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. We as individuals and as a community are now the New Testament equivalent to the Old Testament temple. And this is what it means. Not only your own life, body, sacred space, a place that is to be sanctified and set apart, so is your fellowship and your unity with one another a space for God's presence to dwell. And that means the way you treat each other, the way you talk about each other, the way you live amongst each other, with each other, the way we love each other is crucial to us housing the presence of God. I always like to talk about, not, not talk about, think about, or I'll talk maybe in a private room. When churches pray for revival, I don't even know what that means, but I think what, I think what people are saying is they want God to be with us. God is with us already. Amen. So it sometimes confuses me. But I think, and this is my personal take, if we focused less on what God does and we focus more on what we do, we would see these manifestations. We would see this display of God's presence in our life. Why? Because God wants to be with us. God wants to live in your life. God wants to be on display in your life. Sometimes the thing that's keeping him from being fully active in your life is the way you're interacting with the temple of God, which is the church. The way we're interacting with, we are the dwelling of God. How we interact with each other. That's why unity was so important to Paul. That's why Paul did everything he could to keep God's people united. Regardless of the situation, unity was crucial. Do you know why unity was crucial to Paul? If you read through all of his letters, the one theme that always is consistent is unity. And the reason why is because he understood that if the church is going to be the light, if the church is going to be the force that transforms this world, if the church is going to be the place that carries God's presence 
and brings healing to this world, it has to be unified. We have to be one heart, one mind, one spirit. Because we, collectively, we are the temple. We are God's presence. I don't have my own Jesus. You don't have your own Jesus. I don't got a little bit of the Holy Spirit over here. I got 50 milliliters of the Holy Spirit. He gave it to me. I'm keeping it to myself. There's one spirit. There's one Holy Spirit over the earth. And if you want communion with the Holy Spirit, you have to love your brother. Communion with the Holy Spirit, you have to be united with God's people. You cannot be a lone ranger and think that you have fellowship with God. That's why Jesus said, and that's why Paul said, your love for me will be seen by the way you love one another. Your love and loyalty will produce fruit, and that fruit will be the way you love God's people. It is how you love the world, but it's even more so how you love the family of God, how you treat the family of God. Sometimes we treat people in the world better than we treat the God family. We're like, oh, they're already saved. They're good. We're a family, brothers and sisters. All right, I'm off my soapbox. I'll go on. Just as the old covenant temple housed the presence in order to make God available to saint and sinner alike, and just the old covenant temple stood as a testimony to the nations that Yahweh dwelt among his people, stands as a place. You and I are designed to be that place to which believer and unbeliever can come find God. We are the place that heaven and earth is united. We are the place where God's presence dwells, and we are the place in this world that stand as a testimony to the nations that God is with us. And if you want to come meet God, come talk to me. I can show you the way. Right? We are that place. Moreover, our restored lives are God's testimony to the nations that he lives and dwells among us too. That's why Revelation talks about we will win by the blood of our testimony. Our restored lives stand as a testimony uh, of God's presence. I may need a new microphone. It's kind of cutting out. Um, And although the temple was one building that could only be in one place, The church is an ever-expanding community that is slowly, steadily bringing the presence to the furthest reaches of this world. Isn't that beautiful? Oh, man, come on. You guys, I need you to get a little bit more excited than that. Y'all ain't looking like a temple right now. Come on. You have the presence of Yahweh. The God of the Old Testament that we spent all this time reading about is dwelling in you right now. Amazing. So let's talk about the new Jerusalem real quick, and then I'll wrap it up. Revelation 21 and 22 talks about, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be among them. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. 
And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And as the prophet foretold in the New Jerusalem, they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And at the end of all things, God is once again with his people. Access to the presence of God restored. Adam has returned to the garden. Redemption accomplished. And the beautiful part of all of this is that we have come full circle. What began in Eden ends in Eden. God's original intention to offer citizenship to his family, to every man and woman and child, has been reaccomplished in Christ. There was no criteria prior to the fall to be in God's family other than being born. It was open to everybody. Sin changed things. Death changed things. And God ultimately made a way again for all people of this world to be a part of his family. And God's plan, original plan, that the children of Adam might build their city in the midst of his kingdom is recreated in the new earth. And we too will once again continue to develop and lead this world. We'll say, well, I don't want to be in, I'm, you know, heaven kind of sounds like we're just going to be sitting around singing to God all day. No. We will still have a role. You will still have a purpose. And Paul says it's bigger and greater than any eye has seen or ear has heard. We think we look at this world and we're like, okay, we'll be in this world, but as if it may get boring. But we have to remember that this earth too has yet to be born again. That this earth too is held back because of death. And ultimately, when the new Jerusalem comes and Jesus returns, our bodies are redeemed. This world will be transformed. And like Paul said, no eye has seen or ear has heard the things that God has prepared for his people. The beauty of what this world is going to look like. C.S. Lewis Lewis wrote a, a great book. I think it was called The Great Divorce. Yeah. And... In it, he talks about people who got to go to heaven, but who were, who were uh, on their way to hell, but they get to go to heaven. I'm probably butchering this story up. But this, the, the point of it is, it's people who are unredeemed. They get to go to the new earth. And everything is so hard. Even the grass is hard. It's strong. It's tough. And and everything is dimensionally just different. The substance is different, although it is the planet. And I think what the beauty of what I think C.S. Lewis was tapping into, what you think is reality in this world is actually a false reality. Because the father of lies has formed this world. The power of death has corrupted this world. And it's, it's a digressed version of what it's supposed to be. Just like your body is a digressed version of what you're supposed to be. Just like our humanity 
aggressed version of what inhumane means, something that's cruel and oppressive and harmful. What people are saying is that's not human. It's inhumane, and that's what we've become, is digressed humans. Jesus was the true human. Jesus came as a model of what humanity was supposed to be, what we're supposed to look like. So if you take that concept and apply it to this planet, well, if Jesus blows our mind, what's the new earth going to look like? What properties, what depth, what value, substance will this planet have that we've never seen, that we haven't experienced? Jesus came and blew everyone's mind. Like, I've never heard somebody speak like that. I've never seen somebody, I've never seen somebody talk to the sea and it stopped. Remember that the earth was created to respond to us. We're so used to the toil of our lives that we just can't wait to get out of here. And I think that's where a lot of our bad theology, get out of earth. Because <laughs> it's crazy here. <laughs> because we're so burned out from the toil. We have to remember that part of the curse of death is that the earth no longer responds to us the way it's supposed to. The earth no longer responds and serves us. We end up serving it or ruining it, destroying it. But in the redeemed planet, the new heavens and new earth, the ground, the planet, life will once again respond to the work, to the efforts of humanity. And what once may have been draining may produce joy again. What once felt like I gotta go work, maybe what you need to really fully experience true purpose in its fullness because you're operating in a way that you were created to. And no matter how close we get to God, we're still in a broken planet. And no matter how much our discipleship goes, we begin to access God's presence. We look more like Jesus. We're drawing closer to him. We can't ever break free from the fact that we're wandering in a broken world. And we're able to bring healing because that's the mission. But you need to understand that it's a mission that requires sacrifice. And for those of you who are called to ministry or those of you who want to be pastors or leaders or wherever, whatever context, maybe it's raising your family, whatever context of ministry that God is calling you to, you need to understand that there is tension and there is a sense of embracing the brokenness of this world that is essential to your call. Being used by God in the context of now, in this broken world, does not free you from the effects of it. Matter of fact, it may push you further into it. And that's just a reality. You may go through a deeper season of heaviness before you can handle the mantle that God is placing on your life. 
And I would be doing you a disservice if I didn't give you a heads up. But the beauty of leader in the kingdom, the beauty of someone who is called by God is that you, like Abraham, know your future. You know your ending. You know your destination. You know where you're going. And you know that God is faithful and he's with you. So on the journey, you get, you get the bumps You get the bruises, you get the miracles, you get the healings, you get all the good and the bad, all of it wrapped into one. But like a priest who's the mediator between God and man, between God and the world, we too, as a royal priesthood, as the holy temple, embrace the tension of a broken world, embrace the suffering that our king embraced to bring life to a broken planet. And God creates beautiful things out of it. The thing about the journey that we're on is that death ruled this world prior to Jesus. But took on death, transformed it, and made it the way to life. So that all those who are in Jesus now enter into life through death. Meaning, your death be your entrance into life. Death has been transformed in our lives. And what that means is the fruit that we produce in this world is going to come from places of darkness. It's gonna come from places of heaviness. The fruit that you replace in the life is gonna come from you, you being squeezed a little, from you being pushed a little, from you embracing the tensions, the reality of this world. And God produces beautiful life, produces light that lights up the world. I haven't heard of a powerful testimony that didn't come from a dark space. I haven't seen a miracle from God that happened in the greatest situation. This was just the greatest thing. Everything was good. Why is it a miracle? A miracle isn't a magic trick. A miracle that we see is something was supposed to be like this. And I can't explain it, but now it's alive. And that's God with us. And in the context of ministry, He's with you, but if you try to avoid the journey, you're not going to see the fruit. So embrace the journey as leaders. Embrace your reality for being what it is. Your reality is your reality. The life you live right now is the life that God has given you. And wherever you are, praise God for it because you have a space in this world at at a moment like this to be a light, to be a vessel, to be a carrier of the healing, redemptive presence of God and to have a a mouth and a mind to use to communicate the greatest news that this world has ever heard, the gospel of Jesus. That's 
something to celebrate. That's the context of your ministry, wherever it is. And my prayer is that these past few weeks that you've not only grown in your understanding of the theology of the Old Testament, you see how it's one story of God redeeming his people. You see how it connects to the New Testament and you'll go into next class in January to see more fully how the New Testament connects to the Old. But more importantly, I hope you find yourself in the story too. That you realize that your life is important to God. That you are use that you're usable that the context you have right now is important it's where you are and i hope you find yourself in the story and i hope you've begun to see or maybe you already see that the bible is a self-involving story it's a drama that's continuing to unfold and we're still in it we're still in this great story of redemption And I believe that the church, especially the church in America, needs to tap back in. Because this thing's not over. There's lives to save. There's people that need healing. There's all sorts of brokenness and oppression and injustice in this world that needs to be addressed. And we are the only hope that this world has. The local church is the only hope that this world has. That's you. So, go forth, be the light. Every day you have is important. Every place you go, every person you talk to, everything you do is your ministry. Faithful, and God will remain faithful. Honor God by the way you live. God will honor you. Your character, your behavior, your attitude, your words, they matter. Why? Because you are the temple of a holy living God. You carry the presence of God. And I hope you feel encouraged today to, to know that because God is with you, your life can be a beautiful space of redemption for people who need it. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to the Michael Carroll Discipleship Podcast. Make sure to share this episode with your friends and also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at mcarrollnow. Have a great day. Until next time.